and one and two and two and one oh shucks i can't dance Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I'm joined by Ashley Casavan. She is the executive director of AI Global, a not-for-profit focused on putting research into action by creating tangible tools to help accelerate the design, development, and use of responsible AI. But I first met Ashley back in 2012 when she was with the city of Edmonton. Hello, Ashley, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, so let's get right into it. For many people, AI is either a buzzword or is immediately followed by a quip about Skynet or the Matrix, you know, something that's either dangerous or in the future. But can you take a moment and and make it real for us? Like, how is AI being used today? For sure. And thanks for the quick introduction. I think that um, some nuance to add to this for your listeners is that I moved from the open government space in name, but not really in action because I started doing more policy work and strategy around the use of data. And then I got asked, and this was when I started at the city of Edmonton, then I moved to the federal government to do that work. And within that role, I got asked to do um, work related to AI. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know anything about that. That's not a good fit. But realized that a lot of uh, when we're talking about using tools um, that we're putting in this big category of AI, um, really it's tools that we've been using for a long time some aspects of AI, including a lot of data analysis and using that for prediction. And the deep learning um, models that we're seeing are really just advancing and expediting that. Um, However, we're seeing other types of technology um, like computer vision. Uh, We see lots in the news lately about facial recognition as part of that computer vision bucket um, to be not only predicting, but then also to be tracking. And we're seeing that lots with COVID right now, the tracking and tracing elements of it. So I think really when we talk about AI, it's, it's not only a large bucket, but it speaks to many different, uh, types of tools and technology, but really, um, at the heart of it is how are those tools augmenting and helping, um, to assist humans and do things in a a faster and quicker, more computational way. And so some of the things that we saw from a federal government perspective in Canada was being able to use AI to where there's, uh, have monitors within trains and be able to predict when they would be derailed or use it to expedite access to benefits. And so I think that there's Um, Those aren't always the things that you would see in Terminator movies, but there's really incredible uses um, of these tools. I want to go back. You mentioned something that you were using AI to predict train derailments. Did I hear that correctly? I did not do that, but um, yes, the the government of Canada does it. Yes, Um, in terms of, well, CN does it. And I'm happy to share the article with you so you can share it with your listeners. But uh, they've been using monitors and trains um, for a few years now to really understand and improve safety measures um, so that they can anticipate better when a tire wheel is going to fall off. I don't even know what the right terminology is, but when a... 
uh, when they need to repair a component of it, but especially um, the the wheels associated with the trains. And so these are different types of things where there's lots of different um, mechanical operations in our day to day life. And if we could predict when their end of life was, especially to protect people, there's lots of opportunities to use AI for that. So this, uh, sorry, and I, I think I understand the context now. The AI is being used to better predict maintenance issues on, yeah, on trains. Both in terms of the lifestyle, lifetime of it, but um, also using the monitors to test the wear and tear of the wheel. And so then they would know kind of it's been degraded to this point. So similar to when the tire shop tells me that I need to change my tires every however many thousands of kilometers uh, and they should only be a certain degree of tread. Like I have no clue what that means, nor do I go and like test my car every time I get into it to say, oh, the tread's like one degree less. So if we had a monitor within our tires to say, okay, you're, you're getting to that point, um, both in terms of the longevity of the tire, but then also the, uh, I don't drive a ton. Um, so my tire might last longer than somebody that's using it to commute every single day. So these types of models combined with sensors um, can do better predictions for us to give us those types of alerts. Yeah, because a lot of these maintenance schedules are based on laboratory testing and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Whereas I think what you're saying is like AI has the ability to take those foundational values from the maintenance yeah. schedule and apply it to sort of real life, like how a person drives will also affect tire usage and things of that nature. Both I'm assuming yeah. applies as well for trains. But this is interesting. Yeah. I've never actually heard that application before, which huh. makes a lot of sense, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, you could put it on your, your motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Know how many wheels you would need for your tour. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So, so this is really interesting. But also, what a lot of people like about AI is, is what it can bring in the future. So, I'd like for you to to sort of take this, but extrapolate a little bit. And sort of in the AI community, what are some of the things that maybe like ten years or twenty years down the road will are things being worked on to to make AI much more prevalent or or different use cases. I'm not. I think I'm asking the question. The question very weird. So I'm just gonna read it the way I've written it, which is. <laughs> I understand. Along, I understand. I got it. You understand? All right, yeah. go for it. Go nuts. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I mean, it's. I try not to be a futurist or give a diagnostic on current and therefore future state in terms of where these technologies uh, go, because I do not claim to be a subject matter expert in AI. I really care about how it gets governed and managed. As a result, I've seen a lot of different use cases. And um, I know that you're asking about the future, but one of the things um, that I think is, is fascinating even right now that we don't see is we often talk about the potential issues related to facial recognition, and I will get to how that I agree with those problems uh, in a second. Um, but an article that I was actually just reading this morning, and it is from 2019, so it's not October 2019, so it's not super new if those of you that have seen this previously um, but it was about how India, a company in India is using facial recognition and they are using it to match missing children back to their families. And oh. so they matched 10,561 missing children 
um, with back with their families because they say that they have over 300,000 missing children due to um, trafficking or being forced and worked in fields and, and garment factories. And so it's a really interesting ability to do that. And I think that if, for those of you that have seen the movie, The Lion, <laughs> and you cried during it, like you could, you see, like these are real human um, challenges that in countries like Canada, we don't see, um, I think as clearly as, as other countries do. And so there's definite benefits in using these tools. And I mentioned really briefly at the beginning, the contact tracing apps that are taking place to help flatten the coronavirus curve. And so, but I think that these are double-edged swords in both of these examples in that um, there's definitely a need to advance uh, and use technology in order to uh, augment, assist what we're capable of doing as humans. We've, we've been doing that since the Industrial Revolution. Any type of technology does that. At the same time, though, what's different about the uh, about trains, let's go back to trains or the steam, uh, steam train, or even just technologies used for factories was, and what we're seeing now with AI is that it has the ability to not only expedite, but then expedite the use, but then in that it can expedite the, the implications that it has, particularly on vulnerable populations. So in that exact same example with facial recognition, there's questions, and actually there was an article about this week on facial recognition where Harrisburg University said that they could, up to 80% accuracy, predict who is going to be a criminal. And, like, this like is minority, minority report, yeah. Yeah, it, it is because, um, so you can see the one, I mean, not to get down this rabbit hole too far, but who says that 80% is okay? And in talking to a lot of different facial recognition experts, like 99% is not okay. So it's, but also that gets to the point that I was making around what I'm really interested in is that governance aspect of it. And so you can see kind of these double edged swords and especially um, as it goes with contact tracing, now all of us want to be able to share our information to help in any sort of way that we can. We're, we're all, sheltering in place in order to to make that happen at the same time. And so getting a notification on your phone, for those of you that don't know about contract tracing, um, the idea would be that you would get a notification or there's different applications, but Bluetooth or different types of um, technology would be able to uh, determine where you, different types of protocols, sorry, would be able to determine where you are and who you might have been in contact with so that they can be alerted um, that they might have been in contact uh, with somebody that has tested positive for COVID. So all this to say is that on one hand, super positive. The other hand is that you can see where then a surveillance state um, could be established if the management and use of that data is not done appropriately. So where I see this going in the future to get to your actual question is that it's, I think that we're going to continue to go down this trajectory. I think that there's lots of interesting work that's going on related to artificial general intelligence. I, I believe that that will happen probably not on a, in the 10 year timeline, but I do think that we're getting closer to that meld of augmentation and robotics uh, really being able to behave like humans. And with that, I think comes great responsibility in terms of how those machines 
um, whether it is for facial recognition purposes or for um, kind of overall behavior purposes are are actually being done in a way that's that's responsible. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about you were mentioning about responsible and and AI global makes a distinction in creating tools for responsible AI. You use that word quite a bit on your website yeah. and the tools that you use, uh, as opposed to what can be referred to as sort of straightforward AI. Um, can you help contextualize what you mean when you guys say responsible AI? Yeah, for sure. No, thanks. It's a good question. So I think that this really stems from the work that I was involved with the government of Canada, where at first we were talking about the ethical use of AI. And this was a lot of what was coming out of research and different types of um, think tanks and companies were talking about ethics and the need for them as it relates to humans or as it relates, sorry, to AI. And one of the things that there was a lot of discussion about uh, in government was well, ethics can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. And I then therefore think that, especially given that AI is uh, a technology, technology doesn't have the same boundaries that we have when we're thinking about how to apply ethics within a country, for example. And so it's something that needs to be a lot broader when we're thinking about that, because I don't think that we as an organization or uh, even any individual government can then tell other governments how they're supposed to behave or not behave. So we had transitioned to the word responsible and the, the use of that and also, but really indicating that responsibility was based in human rights. And so while I have not uh, intentionally put forward on behalf of AI Global yet another kind of framework in this space, because the idea is to make sense of those existing frameworks as opposed to contribute to that. How we have categorized um, responsibility is into is following the best practices that we've seen from reports like IEEE's ethically aligned design, the SLMR principles from Future of Life, um, IBM 360 fairness tools, uh, 360 tool, the Google principles. So we really wanted to look at what is industry, what is academia, what is civil society, what is government saying about um, about all of this. And so what we came up with was a unified framework is what I like to refer to it as. And so we look at dimensions of accountability, explainability and interpretability, data quality, um, bias, fairness and robustness in terms of how we define or think about what does it mean to be responsible. So, and this is in reference to the, what you're calling, I believe, the Responsible AI Trust Index. Is that right? Yeah. So then from these frameworks, they've, um, the challenge, if anybody's read any of these frameworks, is that they are high-level principles. Um, so similar to the uh, rights, the Declaration of Human Rights and Freedom. And that's one of the things where then you as an individual don't know necessarily how to apply that in your context. And so what we've tried to do is move beyond theory and create uh, an applied approach to how one could actually uh, apply these concepts of or principles of responsible and ethical AI in their own practices. And so what we've done is, as you mentioned, uh, launched a Responsible AI Trust Index. And that's really to uh, help evaluate 
um, those different best practices. And we will be getting into more domain and regional specific and potentially technology specific um, extensions as it relates to these. Uh, but there is kind of a overview in terms of a what are kind of the basic things that you need to be doing and thinking about within your organization as you design, develop, and deploy this work. So let's take a few moments here to talk about trust because trust is a big issue right now for a variety of reasons. Obviously, trusting the government, trusting technology, there's misinformation, there's fake news, there's postmodernism, post-truth. There's so much going on when it comes to trust. How can, is there a way that AI can can find that signal. I guess maybe that's what it is that what this, the, the responsible index is all about to a certain extent. It's to cut through all that, and I, and then it becomes a question of can we trust that AI, or can we trust who is the person behind that AI in particular, and how it's going to be used? How, how do you reconcile these thoughts and these these? No, I. That's exactly <laughs> your exasperation was exactly where I was at when. Um, I mentioned that I did this work at the Government of Canada, um, and so particularly what that work was, was the uh, creation of a first federal government's approach to how to govern internal use of uh, these AI tools in a responsible way. So it's called the Directive on Automated Decision-Making Systems, and uh, what we did with that was a key piece of it was to put it together an algorithmic impact assessment, which all these documents have been saying is a, a good idea to do. How we applied it was by not trying to treat all of these different types of AI projects in the same way, because again, it's that big bucket to what we talked about earlier. So the algorithmic impact assessment was to identify the risk. And then it scaled the requirements based on the risk of that. So one being low, four being high. Um, the riskier it was, not the more compliant you needed to be, but the more rigorously compliant you needed to be. So you still have to achieve all of those dimensions. So something like a third party review is what we were an independent and third party review um, is something that we had talked about um, managing, maintaining, operating the system, uh, approval to operate the system. What is your notification process? These are all things, again, that are best practices, but contextualizing that and figuring out how it applies is then what that next step is and understanding how to govern all of those pieces. So that's really what, and you asked in the last question, like what are some of the questions that we're asking? It's really the um, questions related to uh, what is the intended use of the project all the way to what are the various different uh, risk assessments or what are you doing to mitigate any sort of risk or harm um, in terms of who it's impacting, including vulnerable populations. And so, or specifically looking at that. And so all of this work though, really for me culminates, you asked about like trust and, and what does that mean? And the, how I see that because that's what the problem that we were really trying to solve when we started this within Canada was to say, okay, um, society needs this. Uh, it's happening whether or not they need it, actually. So how do we just make sure that, yet we've seen in polls, like um, Ipsos did a poll in 2018 specifically re related to Canada and the trust that Canadians have related to um, the use of AI and especially government's use of AI. And as you can imagine, it was quite low. And so, um, and one of the things that was interesting is that um, the more that the application could actually benefit them, the more that they were fearful of it. And so with that mission um, or understanding 
that's kind of how we developed the directive work. But then furthermore, what I'm expanding on right now is how do you address that trust? And so by answering and not just saying, oh, yeah, we have this framework and we apply it within our organization, but you don't really know. It's kind of like loosey goosey. How do you know how you're doing that? This is where I think my open government background really comes in, where it's saying, okay, we'll demonstrate how you have applied that. And so by having an index, you can demonstrate, well, you've done all these things. You've thought through all of these things. You have put together a third party review of this. You've looked at um, different security aspects and dimensions. So that in itself um, tries to establish that trust. I do think, though, it's very important that this work ends up becoming a certification mark. So we've been working with um, accreditation bodies to try and uh, or to build out a uh, a private governance program for this. Um, so we're continuing to mature and advance that work in order to make it an independent and authoritative certification. Yeah, sort of like grade A Angus beefs. Yeah, well, that's why when I say like your <laughs> exasperation resonates with me because that's exactly what I was thinking. And I was at the grocery store one day and I saw the good catch symbol on fish. And I was just like, this is what we need. And I don't think I say this as in like, oh, this is my eureka moment. Like, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have thought about this. So it's not genius at all. But it is like, there is something that you need to kind of demonstrate that, okay, somebody else who knows what they're doing has looked at this. And I'm cool with that. I I am never gonna know the ins and outs of fishing. But I want to make sure that I'm eating sustainable fish. And so I, because that's just like a value that I've chosen to have. And so if you choose like, okay, I don't trust this, but here are some of the things that I can do to feel more confident about my choices, then I think that becomes a real benefit. And one thing I would just add to that really quickly is that we think about that in terms of that consumer output, but there's a lot of trust actually that needs to happen between business to business or business to government. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing now is more geared for that transaction. And one of the other projects that we did within the Canadian context is um, creating an AI procurement list. And we, uh, in order to establish that of pre-qualified vendors, it wasn't an actual procurement. Um, so it's kind of the first step. And in order to do that, we assessed vendors against competency, capacity, and ethics. And if we would have had something like this to be able to say, okay, well, this is what ethics means, um, that that would have been so much easier. Instead, we just said like, well, demonstrate that you're ethical. And it makes it difficult to, in a measurable way, evaluate that. Yeah, a lot of these issues are, are very much intangibles, right? And yeah. and it's it's hard to measure. Like I remember a number of years ago when the wellness index yeah. came out. Yeah. And it, it involves so many different dimensions and formulas to bring it to like how do you measure something as intangible as wellness? And I think um it's it's, it's nice that an institution like AI Global exists to to try to to find a way to measure it, but I I I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, when it comes to AI, I'm just very concerned on how it will be applied and who will apply it. So I want to go back a little bit here. And, and you had mentioned a few times that your work in open government, open data has influenced quite a bit of your work at AI Global. And, and I'm not big into the AI, the AI community, but both you and I have been very active in open government and open data for about 10 years. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong on this. The way I see government adopting and loving AI 
seems to be much faster than their adoption of open government and open data as a whole. Am I wrong in thinking that? And loving might not be the right term, but they seem to be much more amenable to bringing in AI technology and AI philosophies. But open gov and open data, it's, we're still a decade in and taking a lot more work. I don't know. Am I wrong? Interesting. I never really thought about it that way. I actually have been, I thought you were going in a different direction and I was going to be like, yes, I totally agree. It's the same as open data and open government in that it's kind of the buzzword or thing that's interesting right now. And therefore there's been a lot of interest in, and hype around it. But anyway, uh, yeah. So no, I guess I don't agree. I think that the there's been probably a more expedited adoption of policies related to AI for a couple of reasons. One, I would say that there's definitely a real threat. So like that's that trust that you asked about and the concern that people have, I don't think is the same thing with open data and open government in mm. that it's a very tangible thing yeah. to people to understand like why is it super important and so this is a little bit easier to be able to explain um even basic things like do you prefer talking to a chatbot or to a human and these are things that are popping up in everybody's life whether they like it or not but to be able to then um make the equivalency to open data and say, uh, there's going to be more transparency and less corruption in your government if you release these data sets is first a recognition that that's an issue. And then second, demonstrating that that's a real way to resolve it. So what I do really like, though, is that I think that in a similar sort of way to open data and open government is that there, there was um, and is a active community around kind of both of the issues, I would say. Um, I do think it's bigger because of the reasons I mentioned from an AI perspective, but I think both of them are still concepts that have been around for a very long time and are being popularized. This is being popularized uh, right now. And because of the adoption and increased use of these systems. And so because of that, I think that what's been really interesting for me to see is how many people from the open government community are in this space now. And similar to kind of my initial reaction on like, Ooh, I don't have the capacity to take this on as director for digital and data. Like that doesn't make sense that it's part of my portfolio. But then, as I said, it did really start to make sense because the same practices apply. You want to be able to have good quality data in order to feed the outcome that you're achieving with these systems. And you will appreciate this. I just saw um, something the other day that was like for the nine millionth time in my life. That's like garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> and so it's just like, it's the same stuff. It's the same rhetoric, um, whether it is, at being thought of under the auspice of AI or being thought of the under the auspice of open data. And so what I think is really encouraging to me is not only to see those same sort of faces, because it's demonstrating that there we um, are finding a different home um, or connecting it to kind of a broader um, initiative. Um, but also that transparency gets baked into all of these activities. So as I mentioned, not only does a 
organization going through something like the trust index indicate transparency, but furthermore, um, the work and how I've been doing it is uh, in the open. The tool itself um, was built on an open source tool that was started at the government of Canada. The spreadsheet that is the trust index is open to the community. And also um, we have a portal, a community portal, and it's built on CKIN. So it's, um, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of things that have been fostered by the open government community that can now be manifested in this mm-hmm. responsible AI space. Oh, that's that's great to hear. And and actually, I want to go back. You said something earlier about chatbots. And I, did you want to speak to a chatbot or not? And I think there's an issue of you should know whether or not you're speaking to a chatbot or not. But the, the, the question I wrote and prepared myself for this, and I'm going to stick to my script here for a moment which is like AI, like for the longest time, it's, it's, it's been a thing that only existed in science fiction, right? And I'm wondering how much science fiction plays a role or maybe informs sort of the AI community. And I'm talking about things like Asimov's laws of robotics. I'm talking about the Turing test, like being able to distinguish between a human and a robot. And these date back decades. But I am wondering, like I said, are they a part of the AI community or are they just sort of devices that are used for, for good storytelling? Oh, no. Those are, I mean, the Turing test, I think, remains the only thing that the entire community can agree upon to in- indicate whether or not something is actually AI. So can a human be fooled that this is a machine? That said, there's other, there's a lot of other definitions out there. As you've seen with my work, I don't define it because what I'm actually really interested in is in a similar fashion to open government. Um, as for the last question, I think that it's really important that we just think about what the desired outcome is. And for me, it's desired or the desired outcome for this is the responsible use of technology. And I think that what we're doing can apply to all types of technology. So whether or not something is characterized as AI at the end of the day, matters less than is it being done and implemented in an effective and responsible way, um, independent of the type of technology. So all that to say is that, yes, those kind of concepts are still, I would say, present and different people. And and one thing that I would say is that that is for my purpose. Other purposes, there is a reason to define AI. Um, if you need interoperability standards for different types of technology and tools, you would then want to define what those are for. I'm sure there's other good reasons for it as well, but I really don't get hung up on whether or not something's actually AI. That said, I think that um, one of the things that we're also seeing is that AI is a suite of these different tools. So a chat might bot um, could be AI in the sense that it's actually learning from the content that it's being uh, curated from or that it's been trained on. Um, but it also could not be AI if it's just running from content that is being pre-prepared or has been prepared for it. Um, so that's how the CRA chatbot worked, uh, that was available for tax season last year was it was all the content that was on the CRA website. Um, but because it, it was a better user experience for people to be able to navigate that content, which is often complex and you have to know one thing in order to get to another thing and how we set up websites is not always super intuitive or it might be a different navigation experience for you and for me. 
And so that was that a chatbot allows you to take existing content, no learning aspects to it, and then be able to just provide that material in a, a more useful way. And I wouldn't call that AI. Okay, that's interesting. That uh, and and I think I heard you say that everyone sort of has their own, at least at this time, their own definition or their own threshold of what they consider AI. So so let me ask you then, what's your threshold of what you would consider AI? as it exists today? As I said, it doesn't matter to me. Um, so I, I have not defined it and I will not define it here. <laughs> um, and it's not to be evasive, it's just to say that I, my main objective and whether it's been for open government purposes or whether it is for why I'm doing the work that I'm doing now is that um, we as a society are making informed decisions and we are advancing we're advancing as a society, but in an informed and evidence-based way. And in order to, to do that, it's often advantageous to use different types of tools and technology as we discussed. And for me, that concept of garbage in, garbage out is super relevant in that you, uh, you want to make sure that um, you're not only, and it, when we think about it in a data context, it's limited in that what you put in your output is going to necessarily is going to be reflective of that. Um, but I think that what's more concerning when it comes to artificial intelligence is that the potential unintended outcomes, uh, be they moral, material, or physical, are shocking every time I read things in that the potential implications that it could have if you let a machine end-to-end -end make a determination on whether or not somebody gets a visa or in the case that we just talked about, uh, is deemed a criminal. These have uh, divisive implications. And especially on if we're training these models on existing data that has come with a historical flavor of already supporting some communities over other communities, um, then if that's not that looked at when you're building these models or augmenting the data that it's being trained on, then that just perpetuates and exasperates these issues. And so that's that's why I have an issue or why I exist in the AI community now. And again, whether or not the definition is, was a human fooled or not, it doesn't matter in my context. Okay, so, so let me ask the question perhaps a little bit differently. We're gonna have a bit of fun on this one, I think, <laughs> which is, uh, many of us as, as are familiar with the show Black Mirror. And the way I love how um, Charlie Brooker, the creator of the show, and, and his co-creator, I believe her name is Annabelle Jones, described the show is that it's a show that's based in the near future, but is worried about today. And they're very good at not necessarily offering you a cathartic ending, right? They just sort of like, this is what we think is going to happen. How, when you watch Black Mirror, how much do you sort of agree with that extrapolation that they're doing on technology today? Do you think that, you know, it, it could very well go in that direction? Or is that just, once again, science fiction sort of running amok and Hollywood having fun with it? Or do you think maybe Black Mirror is a little bit... Uh, what's, what's, yeah. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but in <laughs> closer attention to what Black Mirror has to offer. So it's interesting. Okay. So a couple of things. The very first Black Mirror episode I ever watched was the social credit one, or I will call it the social credit one. 
Yeah. Wow, you know them off by heart. Wow. Okay. Oh, I'm a huge. I, I researched Black Mirror and Charlie Brooker, and I, I'm just fascinated. So, so go. Yes, knows okay, that. Okay. Okay. I do not know. Yeah, the all of them, but um, so that was super off-putting for me because I saw how realistic that was, and I would say that not all of them have that same sense of. Uh, of discomfort because I think that they're a bit far-fetched or they, I'm, I'm sure that actually every single thing in how they've approached this is based in some sort of truth and, uh, and has been extrapolated as you say. And I, so I, I don't mean that in a way, but I, I think that one really resonated with me. Um, especially because of the discussions related to um, social credit scores. And as much as we really associate that concept with China, um, insurance companies are starting to get into this a bit more in terms of how do we evaluate people? And again, this goes back to that double-edged sword. So I don't, I don't fall um, on this one way or the other. I think actually a conversation I had um, with my insurance company a little while ago was they had offered that app for, okay, well, we'll watch how you drive and blah, 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 blah. We'll give you credit. And uh, I was just like, are you giving that data to the government? That would be super useful. And so I think that like the, there are reasons why we do this, but then again, this goes back to trust. So I don't want to get into that, but I just, the point is that I do think that there's some elements of black mirror that are actually a lot more relatable or relevant to what we're doing. And so that one in particular was one that um, I, I not only think about in the work that we do, uh, but also, and think about, well, how can you design these different types of tools and systems? So that type of intervention or that type of thing doesn't happen. And then what interventions are needed if those ty different types of, um, nose dives occur. But, um, so that, that is definitely something that I think if we do go down a path without having any sort of guardrails or oversight or accountability in place, a lot of those things can become reality. Um, not to mention when I was in Tokyo last year, I think just like how they've done the sounds and everything like that. I was saying to my partner, I was like, it feels like we're in an episode of black mirror right now. Like I, so I think there are things like that we're also seeing in other cultures that are maybe less familiar to us, but even those like, really nice sounds, soft noises and quiet cars moving all around are really, but yet, sorry, with a, with a layer of um, dark technology behind it almost. And I don't mean that necessarily like in an evil dark sense, but like they're kind of like day and night, Tokyo are very different kind of looking and feeling cities. And so I think there's like an interesting kind of contrast that they've done with that show there in general. So I don't know if that answers your question, but anyway, I feel like there's some stuff that's way too spot on. That is scary. The recording one too, with the, uh, the film in the eye and he can go like, you can play back. Yeah. You're, you're talking about, I think uh, the entire history of you where he has a fight yes, with his girlfriend yes. and the, the, you know, cheating and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Now, That's just like, so you know, some of these things. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I apologize. Continue. I'll, I'll, I'll give you my anecdote afterwards, but some of these things. No, no, saying, no. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of the show black mirror itself, 
in that it was actually a BBC series back, I think it was launched yeah. in 2011. It, it only had like maybe seven episodes over the course of two or three yeah. years, two or three years. And that's when I became a fan of it. And then it was a period of detente, we'll call it. And then Netflix picked it up yeah. and all these new episodes came around. But a lot of the older episodes, yeah. like the entire history of you, 50 million credits, uh, White Christmas, White Christmas. Oh yeah, is, that one's scary too. Yeah, it's one of my personal favorites. Date back <laughs> to 2012 and 2013. Uh, the Waldo moment is is essentially was they're old, like they're almost like a decade old, and a lot of the things that were in, the, in those episodes back then are sort of coming true. The Waldo moment in particular is almost like a reference to Trump and how mm -hmm. he sort of usurped the electoral system by being a character. And the Waldo moment, if you've watched it or not, is actually a, is this an the one that ends with the pig? No, that's the very first one. Okay, okay. That's the very okay. first one. I forget the name of it. I think it's the okay. national anthem. Uh, but okay. a lot of these things apply to a lot of these episodes go back to almost a decade and we're sort of seeing them happening now. Mm -hmm. So the entire history of you is part of what can be referred to as the first run, the original BBC run. And it's almost 10 years mm -hmm. old. And I think you're starting to get that a little bit uh, with technology, not so much the, 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 the eye stuff, but I don't know. I lost my own train of thought here. So I okay, apologize. Well yeah, no, 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 no. I think that the whole, but the, what I was saying about the history of you is that it is quite scary to even document. And one of the things that um, has been interesting in the work that I've been doing is understanding like how we we put humanity or humans and our capabilities on such a pedestal. So like mm. remembering things is something that we're actually not very good at and identifying like remembering exactly what's happened and then also being able to identify that. So I will definitely not remember the actual numbers on this, but there's something, there was a uh, report that was done that was looking at how people can actually recognize other people's faces and what the efficacy of that was. And we, what we think that we're able to like, that we've truly, truly seen is vastly different than what we've actually seen. Yeah. Um, and so they worked with a sketch artist and, um, there was a variety in terms of people's capabilities. So people, one person, um, she was a, um, a security agent like going through it like a border security agent and so she was actually a lot better at it because probably like that's a lot of the the work that you're doing but not nearly as good as machines can do and so this idea that we're able to remember all of these things word for word and i think i don't remember the details of that episode um but yeah i think they got into a fight and we're remembering things i was just thinking like that would never happen because you don't have any sort of evidence and so i even question we talked about this um, as it relates to data and open data is like, I often think like, okay, well, making evidence-based decisions is good. But also one of the things that I've realized and evolved from, I would say, since we've met is there's a lot more nuance and subtlety that goes into how do you make those determinations? And so continuing to have a human in the loop for this type of work um, does remain important so that you don't have kind of that, um, black and white that you see in Black Mirror. Um, and so I think, yes, it's extrapolated probably from real things that have existed, but to the extent that it goes, I think we right now need to make those different types of interventions as humans to say, okay, well, this is what separates us as humans from machines. 
And and we got to start thinking about wrapping up the interview because I have a feeling <laughs> like you and I could talk about this for a while, especially on the Black Mirror <laughs> side of things. But um, you, you joined AI Global about a year ago. Uh, you were doing some work with the government on AI about, I think you started about two years ago working on that. So you've been in the AI, AI space mm-hmm. for a couple of years. During that time, how has your perception of AI changed? Or, and, and, and additionally, how has the conversation around AI changed in the last couple of years? Huh, that's a good question. Well, I would say that kind of like you noted with open government um, and that the AI space is gaining more popularity. Um, I would say that I'm really in the responsible or ethical AI community more than the broad AI community. And I think so I can kind of only speak to that aspect of it. I think that there's been a lot more interest in it um, in the last year or so. Um, that said, I when we started, there were a lot more um I would say fringe people. And when we started, mm-hmm. really, it was Michael Carlin that had realized that um, departments were starting to use these different types of tools and departments were coming to us because we're TBS and asking what what is it that we do? Um, and so he had started to put a, a white paper together, or did put a white paper together that included some principles on uh, what we should how we should approach the governance of AI within uh, within a government context. And why I stipulate that is because that's different than how we regulate external companies. And so that was one of the things that, um, and then Michael's team and my team merged. And so then that's kind of how a lot of this work has started. And so I learned a lot from that, um, but I was kind of coming into it at the same time as we were really ramping up. And one of the things that I think I've seen evolve is there be uh, more use cases and examples of where this could go wrong. And so that fear that we talked about earlier, that lack of trust um, is both getting stronger, but then also I think the need to counteract that is also being recognized and taken more seriously. And I think because of the work that we did in Canada, um, realizing that governments do have a really important role to play uh, is part of that. And so again, why I mentioned the difference between internal and external government is it's been really great to see how um, I said in Global Affairs, uh, sorry, Industry Science and Economic Development Canada and Global Affairs Canada have been working with Treasury Board Secretariat and other departments to um, work with other governments on the development of the Global Partnership on AI. And so I think that these are types of forums and mechanisms where we can manage that. And these are just starting to come up now, but they're big conversations that have been occurring over the last couple of years. So that's how I see it evolving is just, it's taking a lot more shape now and moving away from high level discussions into actions and activities. So uh, in terms of you personally, are you finding that the AI community, particularly as it relates to ethical and moral issues and being responsible and even the, the use cases, is it like an onion where you went into it thinking you're looking at an apple, but it turns out there's a lot of layers. It's, it's not an apple, it's an onion. There's a lot of things that, that I did not consider when I first you know, walked into AI Global, for example, and, and speaking to these, say, perhaps AI companies. Yeah, I think there's that. And we're going to continue to see how 
all of these tools get developed. And I, I think one thing as a, a policymaker that I've kind of always recognized is you can put the best rules in place with the best intentions. And not only do they need to be followed, but they need to be, there needs to be appropriate oversight in place to make sure that they're being followed. Um, but furthermore, rules aren't always perfect. And in the same sort of way that I'm saying like, okay, well, we can make this evidence-based decision. Like there are those different types of um, perspectives that need to be brought into this. So I don't, I don't think as a community, we fully anticipated absolutely every kind of outcome or uh, potential problem that could occur. And I also don't think that we've had enough mature conversations or enough of those use cases to come forward in forums like Global Partnership on AI to be able to determine what those appropriate trade-offs are. And so that's where I'm trying to get with the work that I'm doing right now is to just first and foremost, coordinate and organize all of the different policies, rules, et cetera, that are out there, make them make sense. So put them into this like evaluatable form. And then furthermore, now that allows us to, when we're doing use case testing on this to say, okay, well, if you did have an, or you are impacting a vulnerable population, what's the recourse? Like, what is it that you're doing? Do you stop doing that work? Do you inform them? Do you change the the approach that you're taking? Can you change the approach that you're taking? What is the trade-off between are you impacting an individual over a collective? And there's lots of these different types of things that I think really need to come ahead. And one of the things that's nice that we have is history. And so bioethics guidance has already really established this for how we do scientific tests. And that's also helped to allow the entire um, kind of science field evolve. So on that note, like that's one of the types of things that we're doing is not trying to reinvent anything, but really look to what's already been established. How has history dealt with these trade-offs and discussions? And then how have those trade-offs and discussions been applied from principles into whether they be legal decisions, legal rules, or... Um, interventions or just activities and training and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of how uh, what I'm trying to navigate right now and break down into not only tangible tools like the Responsible AI Trust Index, um, but then additional kind of guidance documents. How's it coming along? <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I don't sleep a lot. Um, I don't know. I'm sure, like, you've known me for a while. I'm not sure why I get involved in these things all the time. I'm like, oh, this is impossible? Sure. That sounds great. So, um, good. It's been amazing to see the community get, um, I think, really behind the need for this. Um, there was... Uh, a paper recently that had quite a few influential authors from Cambridge and Mila and OpenAI speaking about the need for um, these trustworthy systems or trustworthy in AI to have third-party verified claims. And so I think that lots of institutions and organizations, both public, private, civil society, governments are recognizing the need for it, um, as you've identified previously. And so I think that I'm just trying to figure out where is the best place to have that type of impact and bring those lessons learned from open government and from previous policy um, measures 
ahead so that we can um, catch up almost to technology. Like as we've been yeah. talking about, a lot of these tools are happening or are being implemented and integrated into every aspect of our life, whether we really know it or not. And to be able to just catch up to that from a policy perspective is, is really important to me. Well, we're glad you're, you're doing all that work. And before, because we, we do have to wrap up the episode now, I want to give you the opportunity to tell us what, what are some of the things that AI Global is working on right now, things that maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about or things that you want to bring up because you feel they're very important. Sure. No, thank you. Um, I think that we've talked a lot about the Responsible AI Trust Index, um, the open source version of that, which again, we built off of using the work from Government of Canada is the design assistant. And so I would encourage people to go check it out. It's on uh, AIglobal.org um, or just search for AI Global and uh, you'll find that. And the design assistant is right now in beta testing and so we have feedback boxes on the site and i would love for people to uh, run their use cases through it uh, whether or not it is something that they do as an individual or as an organization uh, any type of feedback uh, including grammar issues are important to to know right now um, because we do want to mature it and make sure that it's a tool that's built uh, for the community by the community. And you'll see like, again, why open government has kind of had such a, a profound impact on this work. Um, that said, I also, as I mentioned, am building out different types of resources with other organizations. And that's something that um, we'll continue to do. And those range from user guides to uh, various different uh, worksheets and workbooks. So um, Deloitte's been a, a huge supporter of the work that we've been doing and making sure that we are doing this in auditable ways, um, working with uh, organizations like Prudence AI, Montreal AI Ethics Institute. And so these collaboratives for us become a way to get subject matter experts engaged so that we can um, produce good materials. So. Well, this is, this is fantastic. And once again, as someone who sort of self-characterizes themselves as being a little care, like not a Luddite, I'm definitely a technology person, but I'm definitely leery on, on the use of AI. I'm glad that someone like yourself is there to, to safeguard and protect our rights, protect data, protect the ethics and the morality around using AI and, and, and thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and explain sort of your story and the work and what's going on and being so insightful with your answers. And, and I also want to thank, as usual, our audience. Uh, so please leave us a rating or a comment on how we can make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. And so until next time, let's make it open.